0: Awesome plans this evening. If you don't, that's a shame. Netflix is a great date, from what I hear. Yeah, um, I want to take a moment to welcome all the visitors, all the guests. If this is your first or second week here attending Covenant, I just want to welcome you. Uh, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we're just glad that you're here. And uh, if you would take a moment to fill out the brown card at the back, you fill it that out, put it in the basket, and um, We'll get in touch with you so you can learn more about what we have going on here at Covenant Church. Well, my name is Ben Espinoza. I serve as a pastor here at Covenant. And we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Colossians called Alive in Christ. And the whole book of Colossians is about putting Christ first in every single thing that you do and finding your ultimate emotional, spiritual, and intellectual satisfaction in Christ. And last week we saw how Paul talked about how the Colossians should live life together under the lordship of Christ. And this week he moves on to talk about what it means to put prayer first in the Christian life as well. When I was growing up, if you were my friend, I wanted to know your family. And my friend Josiah, who happened to be the best man at my wedding, had a family that I absolutely loved. And I got to get to know my, Josiah's dad really, really well. His name was Mr. Fred. And I love to annoy Mr. Fred sometimes. Now, Mr. Fred was a Gideon. You guys know who the Gideons are. Those are those people who distribute Bibles all across the world in all the hotel rooms across the world. And Mr. Fred was a hardcore promoter of the Gideons. And one day I was over there at Josiah's house, eating some Taco Bell, drinking some Mountain Dew, watching stupid movies, doing stupid stuff. And I went to the living room, and I saw Mr. Fred, and he's this, this big, scary man with the heart of gold. And I saw him reading his paper. So as is my custom, I wanted to go and annoy Mr. Fred. So I go to the living room. He's reading his paper. He's minding his own business. And I see this sheet of paper sitting on the coffee table. And it was from one of Mr. Fred's Gideon's meetings. And it had this huge list of prayer requests on the back. So I disturb Fred while he's reading his paper. And I ask him, you know, Fred, what's with all these prayer requests? You know, can't you guys just pray one big prayer just to kind of cover all the bases and everything? So I put down his paper, and he looked at me really intently, and he said, boy, he said that a lot. And he said, when we Gideons get together, we pray for every single one of these. Do you know what prayer in a can is? And I said, Mr. Fred, I'm 16 years old. I have no clue what anything is these days. And he said, prayer in a can is when you pray a prayer in Christianese, and it doesn't even mean anything. And the enemy loves that. So when we get together as Gideons, we go through all these specific prayer requests because the first thing the enemy attacks is your prayer life. He doesn't want you to pray specific prayer requests because there's power in prayer. So I a grin off my face, and I said, You're right, Mr. Fred. So prayer is important to the Christian life. And I think this is something that we do without thinking too much. But as we'll see in our text this morning, Paul has some specific instructions for the Colossians as to how to pray and what to pray for. So if you have your copy of God's word, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. And we're going to be focusing on Colossians 4 uh, verses 2 through 6. But before we talk about prayer, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm thankful that we can gather here this morning to fellowship with one another, to hear your word, to worship together, Lord. I pray that you'll open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to the different truths that you want us to learn this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So Paul kicks off this passage by saying this. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. So that advice, it sounds pretty simple. Pray. Pray a lot. But Paul doesn't just say that. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. When you look through the book of Acts, you see the apostles praying all the time. Acts 1.14, the apostles all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. You skip ahead to Acts 2.42, a verse we all know and love. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. You skip ahead to Acts chapter 6. The main purpose the deacon ministry was founded in the early church was so that the apostles could focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. And when you look at the letters of Paul, you read in 1 Thessalonians 5 that the Thessalonians should pray Without ceasing. In fact, when you read our verse 4 uh, 2, Colossians 4 2, in the Greek, you'll see that the verse kind of has this feeling of unrelenting persistence. This is something that God's people should do all the time and actively. So when it comes to Paul and the apostles, prayer is serious business, and we should devote ourselves to it with reckless abandon. But Paul remarks that while we pray, we need to be watchful and thankful. And this word watchful kind of has some scholars baffled. Some want to say that for Paul, to be watchful means to look out for the coming of Christ because he could come at any moment. He tells the Thessalonians that he, that he will come at any moment. So you need to be watchful with your lives. And I do think that there is an eschatological purpose in mind, a a, a thing dealing with the end times, that we're supposed to be looking out actively for the coming of Christ. But I think Paul here is referring to being watchful in our own lives and the way that we pray. Unfortunately, sometimes I think prayer can be a distraction from looking inside our own hearts and uncovering the depths of our needs. I know I've had many times in my own life where I'd have a good chunk of prayer time. I'd be refreshed by my time with the Lord, but I find myself caught up in the same sin over and over and over again because I wasn't being watchful with my life. And if it's happened to me, it's probably happened to you as well. Now, I'm not trying to create some sort of false dichotomy between prayer and inward contemplation on your soul, and neither does Paul. Prayer requires that you open yourself up to God, the ugliness and all, and pray that God helps you put to death the ways of your flesh. Being watchful in prayer also means that you're diligent to pray with a focused mind. Frankly, we've all done this. I've done this. I do this all the time. We pray empty platitudes. Lord, bring us blessing upon blessing. Or, Lord, thanks for the gift of your love. There's nothing wrong with those kinds of prayers, but those prayers, if those prayers are the entirety of your prayer life, then something is amiss. You're not being watchful and specific in your prayer life. There's, pro- there's power in prayer. There's power in watchful prayer. There's power in specific prayer. I think we Christians get into the habit of letting our prayer life slip a little bit into autopilot. And you may not be able to see it, but sometimes the result of a slack prayer life uh, could have eternal consequences for good or for worse. Paul knows this, and this is why he exhorts the Colossians to be watchful and thankful in everything that they do in their prayer lives. And thankfulness is another thing that should occupy our lives of prayer. Because when we pray, we usually pray because we have needs. But Paul says pray because you don't have certain needs. How often do we take the time to thank God for the food, the clothes, the shelter, the jobs, the families that we have? In the States, it's so easy to just forget about those things and not thank God for those things because it's so normal. And yet God tells us, to, Paul tells us to be watchful in prayer, but also to be thankful. And when he says thankful, I think he means, means thankful in every single thing. And Paul goes on to say this in uh, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He says, "And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should." So Paul he goes ahead and he asks for prayer for him and Timothy, who was with him. Now it's interesting, is if you read through the letters of Paul, you realize that he's kind of had a rough go of this whole missionary thing. Check out this passage in 2 Corinthians eleven. He says, This I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have constantly been on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled, and I have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and I have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn?" You know all that. Now, why doesn't Paul ask for prayer for any of these things? I mean, I would, and I think you would too. I think it's because Paul's ultimate concern is that the gospel would reach the known world. He covets the prayers of the Colossians, that they would pray for an open door for the gospel to be Proclaimed. And when Paul says an open door, I think he means a few different things. I think he's referring to some sort of legal accommodation so that he can continue to preach the gospel without the lingering threat of Roman persecution. Remember, he's in prison. He's in chains, like he says. And he wants prayer from the Colossians to literally undo those chains so that he can continue in his missionary work. But I think he's also referring to how godless the Roman Empire was. He's praying that the doors of people's hearts would be open to the gospel. And I think sometimes we go about sharing the gospel in our own strength here in the States. We often say, well, this is America. I have the freedom to do whatever I want. I have the freedom to preach Jesus wherever I want. But we fail to remember that most people here in this country have heard the gospel, but they haven't accepted it. They've seen the four spiritual laws tracks. You know what I'm talking about. They've been invited to Christian haunted houses. You guys know about that. They've heard the street preachers with their blowhorns. And they've befriended Christians whose goal was to manipulate that friendship into winning a conversion. Many have heard and many reject. It's not so much a cultural problem. It's a spiritual problem. And the only way to overcome a spiritual barrier like that is to pray that God would do the work that he has to do in people's hearts. And that's why Paul asks for prayer. And I think this is also why Paul describes the gospel as the mystery of Christ. It's because the gospel is naturally foreign to our ears. It's, it's like some, somehow not even comprehensible to us today. How can this world be so fallen when some things are so good? How can God be in control of things when things seem out of control? How can God become a man? And why couldn't God just make everything right? There is an aura of mystery when it comes to the gospel, which we must embrace even if we can't understand it completely. And for people who don't know Jesus yet, the gospel seems so impenetrable. And that's why Paul asks for his own clarity of the gospel so that normal folks could understand the gospel. And preaching the gospel requires the work of the Spirit to do something in your own life as well. You can't proclaim the good news unless you have a personal relationship with the one who gives the good news. And Paul asks for prayer because he knows just how disillusioned the human heart can be by present circumstances. He's been through the ringer. He's been at sea. He's been at danger. He's been flogged millions of times. I think he's praying for his own soul in this passage. And he doesn't want to be discouraged from preaching the gospel despite the fact that it's put him through some terrible circumstances. The gospel is so pervasive, it's so robust, it's so all-encompassing that it's often hard to describe adequately. But here's how I like to put it. The gospel is that the God of the universe is restoring and redeeming human beings and all of creation back to himself through the work of Jesus Christ. And if we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord of all then we can be redeemed and restored as well. But to be able to explain this to to folks who haven't heard it yet, or who have false presuppositions about what the gospel is, is tough business. And that's why Paul is asking for boldness. He's asking for clarity. Not only because his present circumstances are tough, but because the otherworldliness of the gospel demands that the Spirit illuminates truth to those who do not yet believe. And Paul's prayer for boldness, for clarity, complements what he tells the Colossians to do in the next couple of verses. He says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And these are some interesting couple verses here, because this is the very last set of commands that Paul gives the Colossians. It's not the end of the book, but this is Paul's last exhortation to this body of believers. And I think this says something to us today. Being wise about how you act with people who don't know Jesus is vitally important to our witness. And I think this is something that we can mentally assent to. Well, of course I need to be wise toward people who don't know Christ. But there are certain things about church culture that sometimes inhibit that. For instance, we're in an election year. And a lot of people have very strong feelings or opinions about certain candidates. Have you ever thought to yourself, does my public or vocal support of a certain candidate, does that serve as a help or a hindrance to the gospel? It's a fair question. Because I've seen so many Christians drive people away who would otherwise be open to the gospel because they couldn't fathom the idea that somebody could vote for their candidate's opponent. People watch how the church acts in an election year. So we need to be wise about the way we talk about politics and engage the public square. When you're public about your Christian faith, the expectations that are placed on you are sky high. And you have the responsibility of balancing your personal holiness with social grace. And that takes wisdom. And none of us are going to do it perfectly, but we can sure try. And Paul exhorts the Colossians to make the most out of every single opportunity that they have. This is what it means to live on mission. It doesn't mean taking a blowhorn and preaching to people every single day of your life in the streets. It simply means showing the love of Jesus to everybody in every situation. Everywhere you go, whatever you do presents an opportunity to show others how much Jesus loves them. When it comes to the gospel, there's no divide between sacred and secular. It's all sacred because everything matters to God. And every single thing that you can do serves as a means of sharing the gospel with people who desperately need it. My pastor, uh, who I had growing up with, always used to say that to us. Every single opportunity you have is an opportunity to present the gospel. And I remember asking him, remember, I, I have a thing about annoying people sometimes. I said, well, Pastor Mark, what about brushing your teeth? How can that serve as a witness to the gospel? And he paused for a moment, and I'm like, yeah, I've stumped him, I've got this. He says, think about it. If you don't brush your teeth, you're going to have problems that require you to go to the dentist. And the dentist isn't going to be happy with you. And bam, you just ruined your witness for Christ. I remember thinking, dude, that's such a stretch, but it's not the dumbest thing I've ever heard. The point is this, is that every opportunity that you have is an opportunity to share Jesus with people. And that's why Paul exhorts the Colossians to season their speech with salt. Now, some commentators will say, is that salt in those days had a preserving quality. You put it on fish, you put it on meats to preserve it, so it would last longer. And the thought here is that your word should last in people's minds. And part of that is true. But I think it kind of misses the point of what Paul's trying to get at right here. You see, salt tastes good. Am I right? Amen? Okay. And when you put salt on food, it automatically tastes better. Try Brussels sprouts without salt. It tastes horrible. Put salt on Brussels sprouts. They're they're tolerable. Same way with any other food. We crave salt because not only do our bodies need it in small quantities, but it makes things taste better. We crave that salty goodness. What Paul's getting at here is that your words, this is going to sound weird, your words should taste good. People should want to hear you speak. Because we have the most tasty, delicious, and satisfying food that we can give to people. And that's the food of the gospel. Sometimes for us, the gospel is kind of vanilla. Jesus came. Jesus died. He rose again. Believe you'll be saved. Yay. Everyone's heard that story a thousand times. But it doesn't do the gospel justice. We believe that the God who created this universe loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And when we come to faith in him, we participate in the process of making this broken world a better place with him. That's the delicious stuff that I think more people need to hear of. So Paul says, be wise toward the outsiders. Be sure to talk in a way that attracts others to Christ. So just to recap... Paul exhorts the Colossians to pray with watchfulness, with specificity, and to have a thankful spirit in prayer. And he asks for prayer for his own ministry, that he would be faithful in proclaiming the gospel boldly wherever he goes. And speaking of the gospel, he tells the Colossians to live in such a way that brings others to desire the good news. What does this mean for us today? I think it means that as christians we should pray often and pray specifically prayer is perhaps the most important tool in the christian's arsenal and when our prayer lives lack focus or direction it becomes a less effective tool that's why paul tells the colossians to be watchful in prayer because when we're careful to pray our specific requests we're less likely to grow slack and lazy in our prayer lives. It kind of keeps you on your toes kind of thing. One thing I've personally been trying to do is when people ask me to pray for them, I try to pray for them right on the spot because as humans, we, we tend to forget things. And something I've been trying to get into the habit of is actually making a note of certain prayer requests as they come along. So I started using this app called Echo Prayer. You can go on the, the Google Play Store or on the App Store. It's called Echo Prayer. And it helps me keep track of my specific prayer requests and it reminds me to actually pray for certain things. It's super helpful. Now I'm sure a lot of you actually maintain a prayer list, but for those of you who don't, I'd highly recommend that app because it keeps you accountable in your prayer life. And it challenges you to pray often, to have this unrelenting persistence in prayer, and to pray specifically because everything needs prayer. Everybody needs prayer. I think we should also pray for open doors and for gospel flourishing. I'm sure when Paul told the Colossians to pray for an open door, they were like, it's not going to happen. And I'm sure Christians felt that way for the first few hundred years of the church's existence because they lived under such heavy persecution. But the thing is that even under such heavy persecution, the gospel still finds a way to flourish. And it did in the Roman Empire for the first few hundred years until Christianity was made the empire's official religion. So sometimes those open doors may not look like open doors to you, but your duty as a Christian is to live in such a way that brings others to know Christ, and eventually these doors will open. It's something we have to pray for every single day. I want to challenge you this week to pray that God would do an amazing work here in Bowling Green, because when you look at history, You see these great revivals happen. You see the the first Great Awakening, the second Great Awakening. You see these revivals on college campuses in the 70s. That's how Bowling Green Covenant Church was started. People got together to pray for revival. God intervenes in history as he chooses. But he also listens to his people. And when God's people cry out, he hears. And when God's people cry out for revival, he moves. At the top of your prayer list should be that the gospel would make its way into this community and take root. And you should pray that God would give you favor with others as you seek to share the good news with them. I know some of you have have spent decades praying for loved ones to come to know Christ. And I'm sure there were times when you felt is this really worth it? Should I keep praying for this? It is because God is hearing you and He's going to answer you in His time. And many of you have seen God work in such incredible ways. I want to challenge you this week to pray that God would grant you opportunities to share the love of Jesus with someone else. Pray that your words would be salty, they'd be attractive. And pray that those folks you run into would be open to hearing the gospel as well. Pray that this whole town, this whole nation, this whole world would experience revival. Now, I've showed you this before in a sermon, I think, last year. But I found that it's really helpful to think about your prayer life in terms of up and in and out. Pray for your relationship with God that you would come to know Jesus more and more and that you would continually put your faith in him. Pray for your relationship with other people and pray that God would bless them and heal them if they need it. Pray for people who don't know Jesus yet, that they would come to know him and that you could be involved in that process. And the more you pray this way, the more it will be evident in your life. You'll live up in and out. Soren Kierkegaard, who's one of the church's greatest theologians, he said this, prayer doesn't change God, but it changes the one who prays. And praying up, in, and out will help you to know Jesus and make him known. That's what we're all about here. And here at Covenant, there's all sorts of prayer meetings that happen all the time. Every single Sunday morning, people gather in the infant room at 845-ish to pray together. And every second and fourth Thursday of the month, people gather here in the sanctuary on Thursday nights to pray together. And this morning, we'll have some folks at the back near the sound booth during worship and during our communion time who would love to pray with you. And maybe you're here and maybe you know Jesus, but your prayer life kind of lacks focus. You're not in the habit of doing it consistently. Find ways in which you can get that consistency in your life. Like I said before, there's apps for that. There's apps for everything. And maybe you're here and you pray, but you don't yet believe. Let us talk with you about that and help you make that next move in your spiritual journey. Because there's life to be found in Jesus Christ. But that life that we have in Christ, the fact that we can come before God, that we can come boldly before the throne of grace, Came at a price. And that price was that the Son of God would have to die for our sins. That he would have to die so that we wouldn't have to. And that's what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. That through the death of Christ, we have life and we have life abundantly. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here. And as we're playing and worshiping, I'd invite you to come to the front, take a piece of bread, dip it into the cup. Remember, all that Christ has done for you is doing for you and will do for you. And if you need prayer for anything, if you need prayer for guidance or anything that you're going through, I encourage you to meet up with the folks at the back so that they can pray with you and for you. Will you stand with me as we pray together? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come before you. The word says that your son ripped the veil in two so that we can come boldly before your throne of grace and making our requests known to you, Lord. We thank you for the fact that we have no other mediator between us and you except the man, Jesus Christ. Please forgive us for the ways that we slack in our prayer life, Lord. I pray that you'll give us focus and direction and empower us to pray, Lord. Help us to be consistent, And I pray for revival in this community, in this nation, and in this world. That every single person would come to know your love because your love transforms, Lord. Make something beautiful out of all the brokenness that we see. And help us to put you first in everything that we do. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.